Kiara. Welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. Welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. This show provides real stories of resilience and post-traumatic growth from people like me who have lived through trauma and difficult times during childhood, adolescence, and or adulthood. This show talks about what is strong, not what is wrong. It challenges a deficit approach in therapy and mental health and focuses on a strength-based approach. If you'd like to be part of this show and talk about your story of resilience or post-traumatic growth, please contact me from my website at chrissygilmore.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-S-Y-G-I-L-L-M-O-R-E.com. So welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. And today we have Teresa with us. So welcome, Teresa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Hey, I just realized if we start cutting out, we might want to just um, turn off our videos, but it seems okay right now. Um, are you okay with that? That's fine. Yeah. If we need to cut out, just let me know. Okay, cool. Okay. So yeah. So today we're going to talk a wee bit about your story. Um, and I'm just thinking that we just jump right into it if you're okay with that and talk a little bit about your background um, and what has made you resilient, I guess, like what any kind of difficult times you might've had in your life, if that's okay. It's not the, it's not what we focus on on the show, but it is really awesome to have some context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're okay to jump into it. Yeah. I'm all ears. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to talk about elements of my background and some of the things that have helped me become resilient. So overall, just to describe my background, I was raised by a single father in the 1970s and 80s when it was not common at all. And as an adult, I continually find out more about my parents. And in many ways, I wish my dad was still alive so I'd be able to talk to him from a different perspective than what I did when I last talked to him in my early 30s. But my father was a single father and how he ended up raising two daughters then was my parents were very young when they got married. Um, my mother was 19 and my dad was just a couple years older than her. So they were quite young and they didn't have a lot of experience, but um, they got married just like a lot of people from their class background and where they were from. They were both from the Midwest in the US and that's just how they were raised, to get married and have a family. And neither of them attended university, although I found out as an adult that my dad did start taking some university classes. So I think he always did want to go. But they were quite young and they had kids straight away. Um, They had my sister really shortly after they got married, um, like within the first year or so. And then I was born six years later. And my mother told me that she tried to have kids earlier. Like she didn't intend to have such a long break between us, but it was really hard for her to get pregnant again. But my parents being quite young and also coming from their background too, is one of the things they really struggled with was finances. And I think in a lot of relationships that can cause a lot of problems or magnify things that are already there. So um, I've written about this in my last book, but in the 1970s in the U.S., the, um, the manufacturing industry was really starting to struggle, and places, factories were moving to places like the South first, and then later on Mexico. 
And my father initially had a very well-paying manufacturing job and, you know, going, graduating from high school and then late 1950s into the 1960s, it was totally expected that someone from his backbone would be able to find a great unionized job with benefits and be able to provide for a family and be the only one have to work, be a homeowner. But what happened in the 70s, things started to change in the U.S. So it got to be really tight for my parents. And then my mother had to go to work. But she had graduated from high school, so she didn't have a lot of options. So she worked as um, a waitress in a truck stop, not too far from where my parents were. And yeah, and there was a charismatic man that came into the restaurant. And um, pretty soon she started seeing him on the side. So I was quite young when this was happening. I was like a baby, basically. And, oh, wow. But I remember my earliest memories are of it going on, like my parents. Actually, my one of my first memories is my parents fighting. And I wrote about it in my last book, but one of my earliest memories was walking into their bedroom and the whole floor was just filled with shattered glass. Like oh, they wow. were have horrible arguments. And I still remember being really young, like two years old, watching cartoons in the um, weekend in our family TV. And I still remember hearing swear words, but I didn't know what they were. I just remember hearing the words. I just didn't understand. But now I look back that they were swearing at each other. So my parents fought in front of us and they had pretty violent arguments. And my dad was trying to save the marriage was what was going on. And she was having an affair and it was just really devastating because they also were having financial problems around that time Mm. and neither of them I don't think had the tools to really like work through it and counseling definitely wasn't something that people did at the time especially if they were Mm. from like their kind of background Um, Mm. so things kind of escalated and she ended up leaving and going with this guy and they ended up getting married Um, this would have been in 1975 1976 but um, my dad was able to prove that she was unfit mother, basically. Oh, okay. And so he spent a lot of money because at the time the courts were really, they favored the father, I mean, favored the mother. So mm-hmm. it was really, really difficult. I mean, nowadays, just to backtrack a little bit, to get custody, my dad had to build up a lot of evidence. And when he passed away in 2005, my sister and I went through his things and we found he had to keep diaries of everything that was happening so he could have evidence to present to the court because it was so biased in terms of the mother. He had to hire a detective, which was totally expensive, all kinds of stuff to try to gather as much as possible for the court case. But he fought, but at the same time, his factory was shutting down. Like He ended up keeping the job, but they went on strike. So Basically, um, in one summer, northern summer, he um, lost his house to a mortgagee sale, his, mm-hmm. you know, lost his marriage, but he did manage to keep us. But in my one of the chapters I wrote in my book, mm-hmm. my mother, when she left, she pretty much cleaned out the house. I mean, I remember she left like a bed and a few items of furniture. And so I remember being very young and all three of us sleeping on the, on the bed that she left. But I also remember passing by my parents' um, bedroom and seeing my father like bowed, like it was dark in the room. But I remember him seeing him bowed in prayer, just, you know, praying like for things to work out. And 
he really did do the best that he could. And he's like, you know, he felt that he could give us the best environment, the most stable environment. Um, the man that my mother ended up marrying was a very violent man. It was a domestic violence situation, but she never left him. Like, and that's um, kind of, I mean, that's definitely colored my view to that kind of thing today. I think my, that's one reason my sister and I are so strong because we saw my mother being so weak and never being able to do anything. And she was just, I think she's afraid of him. I mean, he was definitely a very big man, very big physically, but he was very controlling. Mm. But um, I never, yeah, to be honest with you, we really didn't spend a lot of time with her growing up. I probably could count on my hands each year, the amount of times that I saw her. So when I think of her now, like she's still living, but she didn't raise me. So I don't think of her like you would a mother. Like it's almost like she's an aunt. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but because she didn't raise me, um, I last lived with her when I was two years old. And I certainly remember her being around when I was really young. And, but, um, yeah, so my sister does remember my parents being together. And so okay. she has a different relationship to her than I do. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, um, that's been a blessing that I was as young as I was, to be honest. I, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask what the title of your book is? Um, yeah, uh, I think. Yeah. Okay. Oops. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, this was a book I wrote about first generation, first students and their families to go to university. And, and it's already published. Mm -hmm. Was yeah. that your recent book? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So what is it called? First generation? College student experience of intersecting marginalities. Okay, I'll put a link in the, um, yeah. in the podcast as well. I'll just put a note here. Oh, excellent. Wow. It if you'd like me, I could read a couple of paragraphs from my chapter about my, my dad. Yeah, go for it. It's yeah. called the chapters. If we had used our heads, we would be set. Let me find. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Good. I'll just read like a couple of paragraphs. Sure. Yeah. That would be lovely. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Because my father Clifford Hines passed away in October, 2005, cannot ask him what it was like to single handedly raise two daughters. However, one of my earliest memories suggests that he would have shared Evangelista's 2003 perspective. In this childhood memory, my three-year-old self crept past my parents' open bedroom door at dusk. Peering inside, I glimpsed my father's outlined body as he knelt before the bed, hands clasped in silent prayer. I didn't know it at the time, but my 34-year-old father was desperately trying to save everything that was collapsing around him. His tire company employers' impending strike would cause him to declare bankruptcy and lose our family home the next year. Meanwhile, my equally young mother had recently left my father to pursue an affair with a married man. She took almost everything in the house with her. She left the sofa, television, and stereo, and my parents' bed that my father, older sister, and I slept on every night. It is almost unfathomable to reconcile this memory with the adult I am today. As a lecturer at a major New Zealand research university, my similarly professionally employed spouse and I live in a quiet suburb in one of the most beautiful places in the world. My life script predicted otherwise, but through hard work, the kindness of mentors, 
careful decision-making and a lot of luck. I am here. Oh, that's lovely. That's so well written too. I love yeah. that. Oh, thank you. That was the first time I wrote publicly about it. Wow. And that you just published this year? Um, this came out, let me see, at the very end, I think at the very end of lap 2019. Wow, that is phenomenal. That is, you should feel really proud. That's amazing. Mm, thank you. Thanks for sharing that as well. You're welcome. I was talking and I thought, you know, I would take off my headphones. I thought, oh, that would go really well with what I was talking about. Hmm, no kidding. And it kind of goes into, um, my next question is, is what does resilience mean to you? When you think of the word resilience, what comes to mind? Yeah, well, um, I can't pinpoint it exactly like right in front of me, but in this book, I talk about what's called grit, E-R-I-T. Mm, grit, grit yeah. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the education research of people who are first in their family to go to university, grit is like stick-to-itiveness. It's the ability to just get through hard times. And I, in my chapter, I call them, the little word that I made up for those kind of days is called faith days. And those are days where you can't see an end in sight. Like maybe you're working toward a goal and maybe you don't see the end of it. And it, you might have a long time before you get there. But faith days are days where you just work in faith and you just work along what your your goal is along the path and you take little steps at a time even though you don't see an end in sight hmm. and the reward is not there yet or what you want to achieve but through faith days that add up i mean eventually you will get there in some way and i think i see it a lot in when i teach now is people that have grit or which i think is resilience are the ability to just keep going even when it's hard when it when like immediately in front of you it just doesn't look possible but you just have a faith in yourself um that you can just get through it and you try to look at things optimistically and just keep going forward and mm. that that's what resilience means and also it means to bounce back from adversities um even if something's really hard at first some people I, I know like have less resilience than others and they just can't seem to pull themselves out of whatever it is. But that's part of it is to be able to somehow pull yourself out and just keep moving forward. Mm. Mm. I really like that. I really like the faith in, in yourself, faith days. I haven't heard that before. Um, I think that is a really cool uh, definition of resilience. Um, yeah, I really like that. That's a real nugget of gold. Yeah. Yeah. And you wrote about that in your book. Yeah, there was a point where I talked about grit and I talked about my own word that I use called faith days. And I remember being quite young when I came up with that. I must have been, I was definitely in my late teens when I started calling those days that. And I just, really? yeah, yeah, just kind of keep going. Do you think that you had a, a pivotal moment? Like that's something that comes out in resilience research. Uh, like you have this defining moment that you remember coming up with that faith days. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I must have been about 12. Okay. And I've always really liked to read and I really love learning. But when I was really young, there was this, I grew up in a country school 
school. So like our sport teams were really popular. Like they were the kids that were really good at different sport. Like they were really well known in the community, but there was a basketball player on the girls team that was very talented. Like she was, you know, like one of the best in the state and, but was also just a great person. And her family were just a really huge farming family, but they were really sweet people. And they found out that I was just, she was like her last year in high school. And then I was just a kid. I was around 12 and somehow my dad was always supportive and he's like, Hey, do you want to try to meet um, her parents? You know, they go to all the games and like to meet her. And I was like, yeah, I was really nervous, but I thought, Oh, I just thought she was the coolest thing and just seemed like such a great person. And I met her parents and they were really kind to me. They said, Oh, we're so flattered that you look up to our daughter. And I was like, Oh yeah, I really look up to her. And they were like, and her dad said, you have class. You're like, yeah, we're good people. Like they're, they were just really nice people. And so her family really reached out to me and they introduced me to her daughter. And I was like, oh, I really look up to you. And she's, she was all modest and everything. <laughs> but she was really good in school too. Like she made really good marks and was going to go to university. She got a basketball scholarship. She was really, really, her whole family was really good at basketball, especially. Mm. And so seeing her go to university was a role model for me. And I remember being 12, you know, it was like a summer's day. And I was thinking, you know what? I want to go to university too. I said, that's my ticket out. Like that's my ticket to a better life is to get uh, education and just get a, you know, a good job. And so I just, she was a role role model and I saw her doing that and going, you know, and um, so it really inspired me to do it. Wow. That's, that's a massive, you know, that you looked up to this, this person and that your dad kind of facilitated in that, that in a way as well. But there was kind of, it sounds like there was something in you that kind of you were drawn to her and you wanted to be like her and somehow, you know, she was a role model for you, but mm -hmm. that it sounds very creative that you kind of, in a way that you kind of brought that as well. You kind of, I don't like to use the word manifest, but you kind of did like you, yeah. you pursued it in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's so cool. Mm. Mm. And, and so I guess around that time is when you made up faith days as well when you were yeah. a teenager. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Around that time, I decided to really buckle down at school mm -hmm. and not like I didn't, I did poorly before, but I decided, you know what, I want to be like this person and I, and I, I want to get a scholarship because I, I had enough sense to realize that that was the way I was going to go to university was to get some kind of funding to be able to do it. So I, I said, I'm going to be like her. I'm going to do really well. And so I really started applying myself and I just worked really hard and, and I really enjoyed learning. So um, I enjoyed it, but I, um, yeah, I just decided to keep doing that. And it wasn't always easy because although my dad did provide like a nice place to live, like we lived in a, in a rural community and we've always, he always had, a, he had um, financial difficulties, but in some ways my upbringing was unstable and just fighting and things like that. Like my parents um, or my family, like they didn't sit down and have family meetings. They didn't talk through things like, you know, I do now in my relationship, like things in my family's background were often like shouted. So often conflict was very violent and, oh. and 
not just in my family, but in other people in our family mm -hmm. too. So those were the role models that I had for conflict. Mm -hmm. But um, but I decided that I really wanted a better life. So I just decided that um, getting an education was my way that I was going to get out of the community and do what I wanted and really achieve the my dreams. Wow. Yeah. And education in itself can be a real source of resilience for people, like mm -hmm. a form of resilience, really. Um, and it seems like that for you was something, you know, it, it was your ticket out, as you said, as well. Like it yeah. was um, for a better future mm -hmm. in a way. Um, did you mm -hmm. want to talk a wee bit about, like, do you, do you think education was a form of resilience for you as well? Or what do you reckon there? Yeah, it definitely helped. I mean, one of the things I got from education was external gratification or like, you know, affirmation from other people. In some ways that had its positives and negatives because I didn't know it at the time, but I, as a child, I had a growing anxiety, but I, I, people said, oh, you're just a worry wart. But what I know now is, you know, if I had a child like I was, I would be kind of watching out for signs of anxiety or just different like rumination and just different things that the child was doing. But it was, my family was a different background. Like they just didn't have that kind of understanding to understand things like that. So in some ways it was really good. Like I got a lot of affirmation from it, but in other ways it also fed into like anxiety because I would work so hard and be so perfectionistic and go over and over and over stuff. I would over prepare for things and worry about about them so th that part of it wasn't so positive but I repeatedly would you know like get positive feedback from my teachers and things like that and um, probably one of the most proudest moments that I had is I worked so hard to be um, the the top of my class the top of my high school class um, which here they don't call valedictorian, but that's what it was. But I worked my butt off <laughs> to, get, to get it. And, and my dad, he was so funny. And where I'm from, there's these families that often they're very big farming families. And, and a lot of them are really nice families, like, but often their kids do really well in school. And so there's a lot of small town politics where someone like us who moved into the community, like we're not part of, like people that have been there for generations. And I remember my dad saying, Teresa, don't you dare give up. He's like, they will give it to one of those other people. <laughs> and at the very end, I'm like, oh, I'm so sick. I just want to graduate and go to university. Cause by then I, I was so excited, like where I was going. He's like, don't you dare give up. <laughs> and so I did the bitter end. I just like worked so hard and I had to give a speech, which I don't, remember a whole lot but my dad brought my little nephew who was about three at the time um, I mean he was a little older now he would have been about three and in front of like all these people in this packed um, gymnasium my dad had my little nephew carry a bouquet of flowers up to the stage oh, <laughs> that's lovely hearted oh. man like I wish he was still alive because he he was a very sensitive, like very thoughtful person. And, mm. um, you know, I think in another time, I think he would have gotten a higher education. I don't, he wasn't unintelligent. He really thought about things and mm. he was always very supportive, definitely. And did his best, worked very, very hard. Um, yeah. Hours, like 12 hour shifts. Mm. All the 
so he was a real role model in that way with um with kind of role modeling hard work to you as well oh yeah definitely yeah. He and he was a bit of a cheerleader yeah he, was, wow. yeah he really he really you know one thing i've really realized like growing up is that our parents are just people and i know my dad did the he did the best he could with what he had you know what he learned from his parents yeah you know and mm. his background was not stable growing up neither was mm. my mother's so they mm. probably did the best that they could they're just people yeah definitely we're all on our own um journey as well aren't we yeah um and it sounds like you used a lot of imagination as well that's a that's a real that could be a real um resilience factor for people is to be able to dream something different from what they have now Mm -hmm. um and i can really i'm picking that up in your story as well that you know that you were able to kind of you saw someone else and you saw a different reality growing up mm -hmm. and then you you and your dad kind of pursued that and your dad facilitated it if, if you really it sounds like you really pursued it and then the power of imagination can be and creativity creativity can be a huge resilience factor for people mm -hmm. um yeah. but it looks like you imagine something different mm -hmm. um, but yeah. you didn't have to do that. Yeah, I definitely was a very avid reader growing up. I've always okay. been reading. Now I tend to read nonfiction, but when I was growing up, I read mostly fiction. And I read. I can say 100% that reading was very instrumental because I still mm. remember being really young, maybe 10 or nine and reading a story that took place in England because I remember they were talking about pence and pounds and um the old version of um of english money that isn't around anymore and i was like wait a minute this is happening in another country so i started learning about other countries mm -hmm. and i remember in 1979 um i still remember the first time i heard it on the radio was an australian i didn't know they were australian but a band called air supply i remember hearing their first u.s hit called lost in love mm. and i was like wow i really like and even as a child i really liked it and then 1981 and 80 came along and my dad on their second i think it was their first major u.s tour my dad said hey do you want to go to the concert they're playing near us in cleveland and he was oh. like that he was really fun and we're just kids and we're like yeah and by that time we knew they were from australia so i started getting interested in this part of the world so we went to the concert. It was a summer's day in 1981. And after the concert, I mean, bear in mind, I was eight years old. My sister was just a, like 14. And my dad actually said this to, he's like, hey, do you want to meet the band? And we're just kids. We're like, Heck yeah, we want to meet the band. <laughs> so he found their dressing room. We waited outside their door and there was a, just a really small crowd there. And their guards came back and they said, yeah, come on back. I'm uh, yeah, it, my sister could confirm like she was there. We still talk about it. And I we went back and we met the band. I mean, I was so nervous. I was speechless. I was just a little kid. <laughs> and my sister said that she had photos, but I have memories of it. I was so little. I was on their lap. That's how little I was. And they were really sweet. I remember they were Australian. And so that also inspired me like mm. about other countries. I've always yeah. been interested in traveling overseas and that they and were very instrumental. Yeah. And you, and you live overseas and you have, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. That's so amazing. Wow. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Your dad really did try 
the best that he could, eh? He really yeah. did with what yeah. he had. Wow. Yeah, he was a lot of fun, and he was, um, you know, always supported and was always interested in other countries himself, so, mm. Um, mm. so ever, you know, always very interested in that. Did you have any beliefs growing up or during your adulthood as well that have helped you? Hmm. Um, definitely one thing that's really helped me is if someone tells, says no to something, I always look at that as just one person's perspective on the situation, but that doesn't mean if someone tells me no, that's just their perspective. I mean, some cases someone says no, it really is like the best thing. It's like illegal, hmm. but course. I've always looked at that and I've never let anybody stand in my way of what I wanted to get, like to achieve. I shouldn't say get to achieve. Mm. And also, I also believe we have a right just as much as anyone else to, to be in a space. I don't think someone who's like a celebrity, I don't think they're any better than anyone. Um, mm. I, yeah, I'm very passionate about that. I believe we're all important and no one's better than someone else. Mm. Mm. Nice, nice. So, so you, you really, um, what is it? The, sorry, just, it's kind of like it's equality but it's also you know how that there's equality of condition and mm. there's oh equality of opportunity and equality of condition and sometimes there's everyone has the same opportunities but some people not everyone has the same conditions mm. that are equal but it sounds like you're saying that it's equality all around we all deserve the best. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think we all do. I don't think, and I don't think any, no one's, I don't think people are someone's better than someone else just because of who they are or what they do. Um, so I'm very passionate about, about that. Mm. And um, yeah. And it's really hard for me to look at inequality in the world. Like that's one thing I can't wrap my head around is how some people like I know one public figure who has like six houses um, in um, someone that lives in this part of the world. And I'm like, how can that person have six houses mm. and other people don't even have shoes that live in housing New Zealand. And that's one thing that makes me very angry when I think about it. It's like, it's just luck that people are born how they are and mm. what family that they're in. But yeah, that's one thing I can't wrap my head around <laughs> that very, very frustrates me. <laughs> Is that kind of greed? Um, I think part of it is greed because people just get more than what they need. And actually, we don't really need a whole lot. Um, mm, that's true. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, mm. So and also, and also, it sounds like another belief that you said is that, you know, just is that everyone has their own opinions. And if someone says no, it doesn't mean that that's no for you within reason, of course. Um, but but yeah, I, I would agree with, with you on that. Some people will have a lot of stops um, and they'll be very rigid in their thinking possibly. And it sounds like what you're saying is, is just because someone doesn't agree with you doesn't mean that you won't do it. Is that what yeah. you mean as well? Yeah, yeah. And I grew up in a very conservative area. So I've always, I just, um, I've always been different from that. Like I've always been interested in people from different backgrounds and different countries and different cultures. Like that to me is not threatening. And I like, I've always been really interested in learning different things. So, um, 
you know, being around when I'm, yeah, people that are very, very um, insular in their thinking is very hard for me because I just have never been like that. And I think growing up, I was very open before I even knew I was because I never really fit into that situation. Mm, it sounds like it. It sounds like you were like being able to open up and, and expand your mind was kind of like what also supported you and being able to kind of create a different life for yourself and mm -hmm. also that openness and almost being quite liberal in a way mm -hmm. do you reckon yeah. yeah I think I was liberal before I even knew that I was <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like it language for it because I didn't know people that were liberal around me but mm -hmm. I just didn't what I learned when I went left home is that I just didn't have the language for it yet but mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. then yeah so but, um yeah and it sounds like you were super curious as well, like mm -hmm. curious about books, curious about reading, even curious about other people's lifestyles in a way, I wonder, and research, yeah. like education. There's mm -hmm. a lot of curiosity behind that. Um, there can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love hearing people's stories. I love talking with people and learning where people come from and why they think the way they do. Mm -hmm. I find that just really interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. And there, is there any other kind of resilience kind of, there's like, I've got a bunch of factors here. There's like community connections are real good sources of resilience and religion and spirituality, playing music, listening to music, sports, yeah. metaphors, mm -hmm. um, even sensuality and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, these are all some resilience factors that, that are quite common education, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have anything else that you'd like to share in terms of what have, what has helped you along the way? Yeah, definitely. A couple things I can share is one of them definitely was music. I've always played an instrument and I've really enjoyed that. And also having mentors. Mm. One thing that my husband and I have talked about a lot is my sister's life turned out very um, different than mine in some ways. And we talked about, well, what was different in our upbringings? And Timothy said, well, one thing, well, I've, I've thought about this myself too, is I really did have a lot of mentors that really reached out to me. Um, one of them I had was my family didn't actively attend church, but I eventually started attending a local church on my own, just with a friend. And I found that I really had a supportive community there. And there was a number of older women in like some of them were been like my grandparents age but older women that kind of took me under their wing and kind of were very motherly so I had a lot of mother figures in my life that really reached out to me and nice. also in the community I had our local editor of our local city newspaper I started writing as a teenager for like a column like a youth column and her and I became friends and she really became a huge huge support for me like all through wow. school and even recently i mean she i dedicated my recent book this book that i just shared i just read from to both her and another woman that were very very important role models wow and so just, mentors as well and and females and it's almost like that that amazing creativity and that imagination that you again you kind of found someone to take you know to kind of stand in the place of your mom in a way um, yeah yeah, yeah possibly yeah, definitely like mother figures mm. and 
even in New Zealand, I have a few ladies that I've met who have become motherly to me that would be like the age of my mother. Now my mother's like in her seventies. So, um, they would be the same age. And, and I also, um, have an ex-boyfriend whose mother and I were very similar and we're still friends. We're still in contact. And I always said she would be so much, she, her and I are very similar in a lot of ways, very similar backgrounds. And, just our personalities, our interests. So I'm so grateful we've stayed in touch. And I know some people here, I know one person that's quite similar to her. And so it, it's almost like they, Timothy and I were just talking about this um, yesterday that either of them could have been my mother. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they're both the same age and they're, we're, they're, it's almost like, they're, she's like, they're so much, they're so similar to me. <laughs> mm. yeah. That's awesome. And it sounds like you're, it sounds like Timothy as well that he, he's quite a strong connection for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his upbringing was very different than mine. He had a very stable upbringing. Um, his mother was a stay-at-home mother. They had a very stable marriage. So they were, he had quite a stable upbringing um, than mine. And so it was really good to meet him and to like be with a family you know, like, a, like holidays. I mean, not like we didn't have family holidays, but a more stable situation with, I was, it was really important for me to marry someone whose parents were together. I really okay. wanted that stability. And I really, okay. that's one thing I always wanted growing up. So that was important to me. Oh, that's amazing that you were like, that you, so did you decide that, that that was kind of what you wanted um, in a, in a marriage or in a relationship that you wanted to, the other person to have a really stable family? Yeah, definitely. Okay, yeah. wow. So yeah. it sounds like you had some really strong um, values as well, I'm wondering, in there. Yeah, 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 definitely. Huh. Yeah, there were definitely, I really wanted my future partner to become a, a family for me to kind of fill in the gaps that I didn't get from my parents. Right. Okay. Okay. And you kind of made that pretty clear in your mind as well. It sounds like that yeah. that's what you wanted. Yeah. yeah that's really cool. Cause that's like, a, um, you know, having really strong positive beliefs can be such a source of resilience for people in itself. Um, yeah. yeah, that's really neat. And I'm wondering with playing music, like how has, how do you think that's helped you? Hmm. I think just, it was really creative and it was just a way to relax. Mm. And um, yeah, I didn't perform publicly a whole lot, but I always thought it was just really good to be able to do that. And I just really enjoyed music and to, you know, and my dad was really nurturing to that too. Like he made sure that I got lessons and I think that was just, it's just really good to have hobbies. So I think that's very helpful. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's and to pursue something, you know, that you enjoy doing um, mm -hmm. and to build on that. And it sounds like, I wonder if you were able to kind of release feelings as well. Like you said that you enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think anything creative like that's really helpful. Like I also liked writing. I oh, used yeah. to write a lot yeah. of stories and anything where you're using your imagination and you're creating, I think is, is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like, that's amazing that you had all those female role models all your life. And then you had this woman from the local newspaper. Is that right? And she yeah. had you write your own column. 
Yeah. And her and I are still in contact. I mean, when I go back to visit my family, the yeah. last visit, I only had a few days there and she was one of the people that I saw right up with my, my sister. I mean, that was definitely, that is definitely top of the list to visit with her. Oh, um, I love it. Yeah. So I'm so grateful that I've been able to stay in contact with the older ladies that I knew growing up. Unfortunately, they've pretty much passed away, but I'm glad that uh, some people are still alive. Mm, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. And, and I'm just wondering, um, like, are there types of things that you've done to help yourself along your healing journey? Mm -hmm. Well, definitely like one thing with the way that my sister and I were raised and just the kinds of things that it happened in our family, like, and just other things that happened, like we were growing up, like I was bullied quite badly all through school. And part of it was I, my father, when I was, um, would have been about six or seven, moved to a really rural community from a city. And it was just a really small, like conservative community. And it, you know, it really wasn't the right place for my sister wasn't very happy either. Um, she, you know, could talk about her own story, but um, as a result, it was just not the, really the right place for me. So I was, there was, and definitely back then they didn't do things about bullying that they do nowadays. There wasn't the awareness. It was almost like kids will be kids. So that's one thing I really haven't talked about publicly was about being bullied all through school, um, mm. pretty much from, I would say from year four to all the way to year 12. And um, that's one thing that I'm probably going to start writing about pretty soon, mm. but I haven't mm. decided how I'm going to start writing about it. Because I do believe in, you know, telling the truth of what things have happened. Mm. But, and I, and I don't really think about it a whole lot, but definitely an influence me being very anxious. I mean, that was just one, just one of the factors. I don't say that that was the whole thing. That was the, the leading thing of it. But as a result of it, um, throughout my twenties and up to my thirties, I, I basically managed anxiety on my own. I didn't, you know, I didn't even have a name for it. I just thought, Oh, I'm, you know, just kind of managed it by working really hard and being very perfectionistic. And what happened was by the time I got in my early thirties, it really ramped up. And suddenly then I had, um, we had a beautiful home in Michigan and I had a, you know, really fancy job. And suddenly I think what happened was things just kind of ramped up. It was, you know, adult responsibilities, but I think the baseline anxiety just ramped up. And so the ways that I coped with it before just wasn't enough. So it, it ramped up into where it wasn't panic attacks. I hadn't reached that point, but it ramped up where I would get like, I feel like I was in a fog, which where it's like when your anxiety gets higher, you start disassociating what's what's around you. And I remember being in a class one day and I remember I couldn't even hear a student was talking I couldn't even hear her I could see her talking but I couldn't hear and so at that point I went to uh, um, I think I might have went to a counselor by that point and she's like oh I can recommend you to one the US they treat everything with drugs so um, they said he's he you cut oh. out just a wee bit there. So, yeah. uh, sorry, you saw the counselor and then. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. She referred me to a psychiatrist. And this was all in my early 30s. I would have been about 33. And he said, oh, you have an anxiety disorder. He said, you know, so he properly diagnosed me 
but in the US they tend to treat things with drugs. Um, they're a lot more liberal that way. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, things kind of went on and I just kind of managed, but I was definitely like a lot more anxious than what I used to be. And I was working way too much. I was working crazy hours. So you but got, what so, happened was, oh, sorry, oh, go, sorry ahead. go ahead. <laughs> no, the only thing I was going to say was in the, um, when I came to New Zealand in 2012, I had my first panic attack. And there's, that's when I really realized something was going on. <laughs> oh yeah. That's scary. Eh? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like, so when you were in the U S you were given, you were referred to a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and the psychiatrist gave you some medication mm -hmm. and that was the gist of the treatment. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man. And the counselor mm -hmm. referred to you. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. really shocked by that. Yeah. Huh. And what happened was in um 2012, I I came to New Zealand and and I um well, I think I did some research on the internet and I contacted I think it was called the New Zealand Phobic Foundation or Phobic Trust, I think was what it used to be called. It's not called that anymore. Okay. And they put me in touch with um an anxiety like a group of it was like a um like a private practice of anxiety specialist in wellington and that was in early early 2013 and that was finally when i got the right kind of help yeah and i went to a counselor and i still go to him as i as needed today not um but for when i first saw him i Oh my goodness. I'm actually writing about it in my book coming up. That's the first time I've written about it. And I haven't decided how much I'm going to share, but when I went to him, I couldn't even go into a public mall, like our mm. local mall without a panic attack. Yeah. Mm. And I went to him and immediately he just was right on it and just said, this is what's going on. And he explained how the mind works and what ramps up anxiety. And it was only then I thought I would never be able to talk in public. And I love public speaking and reaching out to people. And um, now I'm able to do it again because he really gave me the tools to understand what was happening and even panic attacks. Like he helped me understand that too and ways to deal with the situation when it comes on. And it's been so helpful and he doesn't use drugs i mean it's it's he uses on um, what's called e emdr therapy mm -hmm. um yeah. the other thing we realized is that i had ptsd from some bullying in my past institution that i am going to write about in my next book but i'm not sure how detailed i'm going to be because <laughs> you should never write to get revenge so i'm i know not to do that not like i want that anyway <laughs> but mm -hmm and talk therapy and he is just and i'm even um yeah it's just been very very helpful i've learned mm -hmm. a lot and it's it's something that i'll probably always have to manage but it's um really it helped a lot and it sounds like you know on the other side of ptsd or you know there's different ways to kind of um mm -hmm. to define really that people have gone through trauma 
is usually what happens. And, yeah. um, and on the other side of it is PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. Mm. And, and that's the, the wisdom that we gain mm -hmm. as of going through tough experiences, because yeah. what, what I've read in some research is that resilience, it doesn't mean, you know, resilience is kind of like a shield, if you will. And it mm. gives us kind of, it helps kind of, or an umbrella and it keep, kind of keeps some of the rain off of us. Mm -hmm. But PTG is what happens mm. when we, our lives become richer and we become wiser and yeah. we have to look within ourselves and find our path out mm -hmm. of the, the yeah. really difficult times. And that's, it's more than grit because we mm. become, um, you know, we have to find ourselves and our true North. Mm -hmm. um, so it's quite a beautiful process. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yeah, PTSD. Okay. There's, you know, it sounds like trauma mm -hmm. and it sounds like in, in the midst of this, you've been doing this amazing growth, mm -hmm. um, you know, like writing and learning about yourself and talking and doing mm -hmm. things that are super, super difficult. Mm -hmm. That's all massive growth. And, you know, in some might even argue, although we don't want people to go through really tough times. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's where we do our most growing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like, like, look at you, look at all these books and <laughs> you now you can speak through, you know, talk to people in huge audiences, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in your professional life. And, you know, it just sounds yeah. absolutely amazing what you're doing. The one good thing that's come out of it is that people have come to me because my next book that's coming out is Mental Health in Academia. And there's a okay. lot of research that looks at mental health among undergraduates because that's such a huge problem, not just in New Zealand, but other countries too. But a lot less research looks at mental health issues and like mental distress among faculty, staff, administrators people that working at universities so my next book is mm. going to address that and that is a huge mm. growing area mm. a lot of factors are causing that but because i've talked a little bit about my interests and privately i've shared my anxiety you know my um my, my experiences with other people people come to me people have started coming to me to talk to me and yeah. they know that I'll, you know, I'm totally confidential and like I can share from experience. Like I, so it's really given me a heart for that because I, I really want to use that ex my own experiences to really help other people and yeah. to be able to speak out about it. And so my yeah. book, I'm going to talk, I'm, I haven't decided how I'm going to write it. I've mm. have a draft of what I'm working on, wow. but really just want to help other people mm. common I mean yeah it's very very common and the thing is. is it is possible to get through it that's Absolutely. what one of yeah my the counselor that I found that's one of the first things he said to me he said it's actually highly treatable anxiety mm -hmm. depression and he's like when you really think about it it's no surprise that so many people are dealing with that kind of he's like look how busy our lives are and he said your brain is always in fight or flight and so he's taught me little things about 
really you have to switch off because your brain he's one thing that I've learned from him is when you have a list of things because I was always like that very list very goal oriented and he said when you're like that every day 24 7 your brain doesn't know the difference between being busy and having a threat and he's like the problem is it ramps up your anxiety and it you never give it a rest and so your brain gets rewired and he's like, that's why it's so important to meditate, um, to go running. He said, even nice. more meditate. He said, re- watching TV, reading a book is good, but he's like, it's still engaging your brain. He's like, you really got to switch off and just do some really deep breathing and you've got to give your brain a break. So in the nice. last few years, I'm very vocal about this too. I've really tried to make changes in my life where I really put more boundaries between work and I'm not perfect by any means. <laughs> I still work too much. <laughs> work in progress, right? Yeah. But I one thing I have done and with his help, <laughs> we worked it out. And he's like, what can you do to cut things down? And I said, well, why don't I stop checking emails until 11 at night and on weekends? And he's like, okay. He's like, you're in a job. Why? And I said, why don't I stop at seven? And he's like, mm. seven? He's like, why, why seven? why not five? He's like, that's what a a normal job is. He's he's really funny. And so I did. I have a thing. I only respond between nine and five. Good. And it sounds like you do meditation as well. Well, I have, I have tried meditation at different times in my life. I really like it a lot, but I find that, um, I tried to start meditating like five minutes a day, but I found it hard to just sit for five minutes, but I find going running, I find exercise, but like intense cardio, I, I really find that that helps you quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's different, you know, like it's gotta, it has to be something that we, that we'll stick to and that we actually enjoy as well. It's not meant to be a punishment. It's meant to enrich our lives more than anything, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, cause as a counselor, I, I definitely truly believe that all the answers are within us and we know what's best for us. So, you know, it, it's just kind of trial and error sometimes, isn't it? It's like you try this and if it doesn't work, you try something else. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you definitely do that, like, which is awesome. It's great, you know, super cool. Yeah. Do you have any kind of, um, comments or something that you kind of want to end this off with with some you know words of wisdom something that you've really picked up along your way um through your journey so far with you know healing and resilience and post-traumatic growth as well like is there something that you kind of want to just share at the end of this podcast here yeah i'd be happy to so one thing that really led me putting this book together was um a situation in my in my um, last employer in the US as I got bullied in my job and I'm describing it a little bit, I'm still working it out, but basically what happened was I was bullied indirectly by an administrator. So it was never direct and that was partly what it was very subtle, but it was um, the type of institution where a lot of things weren't very directly done. But I didn't even realize it was traumatic until after, but basically what happened was I was um, close to getting tenured in my position and everything was really successful all through then. Like I was in the six year probationary period and everything was like, great, you're doing great. And then 
like a few weeks before I was gonna, they were gonna make the decision, this committee, I, um, one of my colleagues pulls me aside in an evening and she's like, oh, there's been some problems with your application. And it was all very odd because it's, I should have learned long before then, um, you know, that there was anything. But to make a long story short, um, I was requested to go into a meeting like, like the next day or the day after with um, a, one of the administrators and then a few colleagues. And basically this administrator, I got into the meeting and she completely blindsided me. And one thing that you're really told that was our policies at that institution is that when you're on a tenure track position, they never look at your, they don't consider your teaching evaluations for like your first um, semester, especially because you're like, you know, you're getting your feet into it and they know you're still learning a new institution. So you might not do as well in your teaching. But yeah, so I get in there and she's just like rifling through all my files from like my first semester. And I was just speechless. So I had no idea what the meeting was about. But I was just very naive and I really trusted them, you know, and so I was just speechless. And I was like, why are you looking at that? I said, that's not, I didn't even know what to say. I was completely blindsided and my colleagues didn't defend me and they knew darn well what the policies were. Now, um, like that kind of ended and I got through it, but I had to pretend like nothing happened. So I had to work with all these people, but around that time, um, it was shortly before I came to New Zealand. I real, That was probably about the time I started thinking, I want to leave here. This is not a healthy environment for me. But what I didn't realize is that I was very angry about it, but it took me a long time to really realize that. And it wasn't until I came here that I would be so angry at them and just, um, I'd be going on jogs, you know, and especially just be like ruminating. And that's one thing that the counselor really helped me with, the anxiety counselors, to realize that that was trauma and I had PTSD from that. And it, that's where the, a lot of the anxiety was coming around teaching was that situation. So he, he did certain kinds of approaches that helped me take me, well, um, EMDR, which was pretty new in New Zealand at the time. And it really did help me reprocess the whole situation. And I can honestly say now I hardly even think about it. Like I don't, I'll remember it, but I don't have emotional memory, like trauma around it. But I'll remember it as like facts. I can see the meeting happen, but that's what I talk about in my book. I don't, I don't remember the, I have, a, I have factual memory, but I don't have emotional memory. It kind of took that away. So, and he said, what happened was it helped my brain reprocess what happened and kind of get past the trauma, the block that it was having. But one thing I really realized with that is for a number of years, I was very, very angry, especially that woman, like the administrator, because, um, yeah, for a number of reasons, that being one of them. But one thing I realized is that I really had to let that go, because by me being angry, they didn't care. They go home with their lives. Mm-hmm. And when I was going over and over that, I was the person that was, that was hurting from that. And it was keeping me back, but they didn't care. They just went on. And so I realized that the person that was losing was me. And then the other thing I realized is that the best revenge is actually a life well-lived and just to move on and to be a good person and just try to help other people and not to be caught up in that anger because that doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help you. You can't help other people. 
And I realized that was my best response to it was to be a life well lived. And oh my gosh, I really like that. Mm. Other people that because, mm. um, and so writing my upcoming book, one mm. thing I really realized, and I learned from friends that are writers, is that you never, because I have a friend that writes nonfiction, and she mm. said, one thing she said to me a long time ago is you never write to get revenge on no. people. You want to write for other reasons. So as I'm writing this, I'm really being careful because mm. that isn't my goal to get revenge. But I do, that doesn't mean you don't want to tell the truth and try to help other people and say, yes, that was something that did happen. And it's very important to speak out, to tell the truth, to help other people, to say, these are things that a lot of people are dealing with. So mm -hmm. to tell your story yes. to help others, but not out of revenge, because that doesn't help you in the long run. And yeah. mm -hmm. the best the best way to respond is to do a life well live because yeah I really believe this when I'm you know at the end of my life I don't want to look back and feel like I've given things a lot of time because mm -hmm. we don't really have a lot of time and I'm very yeah, of time really passing very quickly <laughs> yeah no kidding well thank you so much for for sharing you know a piece of your story here Teresa it's it's an honor to hear your your journey so far you know parts of your journey and and for you to openly share and be very courageous here um mm -hmm. you know with with your with your story because in the you know in the light is the darkness and you've yeah. you've you've shared some of the the hard difficult times you've been through and also the light um mm -hmm. as well in your in your strength and and i have to say you know i'm thinking I really do think that people with high, you know, people that we feel stressed or tense, that right beside that is courage. And I do think that we have more courage than we have stress. And you can't have stress without courage. You can't have anxiety without courage. And, mm -hmm. and I do, and I see you as someone that I really, you know, wow, you have so much courage to openly, you don't have to talk about this and you're doing it and and people are coming to you in your profession now as you say and, and you you it sounds like you use so much integrity around making sure people know that you're not a gossip and you're not gonna you're not gonna share what you're talk you know what people are sharing with you of course but you don't have mm -hmm. to do that and yeah that's amazing that yeah. you're doing that you know that is that is a lot of courage right there that's a huge mm -hmm. amount of courage yeah. In, in Kia ora. Welcome to Voices of Resilience Radio. This is Voices of Resilience Radio. I hope you found this truly inspiring and uplifting, and that you've gained some gems along the way of your healing journey. Remember to be gentle on yourself and go well. For more episodes just like this, please remember to subscribe on rss.com, Spotify, or from my website at chrissygelmer.com. I'd love to receive your feedback, suggestions, and you can provide this also on my website. If you'd like to be on the show, please fill out my Be My Guest web form also on my website. Keep shining your gorgeous light.